I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky. And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. Sounds like it's time for episode 103 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture and art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your two wives and sweethearts, may they never meet, host Howard Kastner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, editor, filmmaker, and blogger David Brooks, who has chosen as his film the 18th century sea epic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. I have chosen the World War II drama, The Enemy Below, both films about naval vessels playing cat and mouse with each other. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, David, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Okay, hi. Pleasure to be here. I'm David Brooke. I've been running Blueprint Review for 11 years, maybe 12 years. I'm not sure, a long time. And we kind of specialize in boutique Blu-ray releases these days view a lot of kind of classic world indie movies on a personal level i do a lot of editing and other kind of video production few feature films probably nothing you've ever heard of super low budget kind of british stuff but i enjoy it Uh, yeah that's kind of me in a nutshell sounds great to me with that let's get to your selection and that is master and commander the far side of the world for some information about the film master and commander is an american epic period war drama released in 2003. It was directed by Peter Weir and written by Weir and John Colley, adapted from three novels in the Aubrey Maturin series of books written by Patrick O'Brien. It stars Russell Crowe, Paul Bettany, James Darcy, Edward Woodall, Chris Larkin, Robert Pugh, Max Bennett, Matt Perkis, Lee Ingleby, Richard McCabe, Ian Mercer, Tony Dolan, David Threlfall, Billy Boyd, Brian Dick, and Mark Lewis Jones. It's 1805, and England is at war with Napoleon. A new kind of ship, the Acheron, has been overtaking English whaling ships and taking their bounty. Jack Aubrey, captain of the HMS Surprise, is tasked with taking the ship, but his enemy is more powerful than he is. But Jack is determined to such an extent that he goes beyond his orders and follows the ship to the whaling waters of the Galapagos Islands on the far side of the world. Before beginning, let's talk some about these sorts of cat and mouse movies. Not necessarily just ones that take place during the war. They could be in other genres. But what do you think is the appeal of them? I think for me, I've always been a kind of a fan of simplicity in films. I kind of like things that strip things down a bit. And I think it's quite a nice setting for a quite a no-nonsense thriller or action movie when you've just got one guy or one team pitted against another. It's got a kind of a, a very simple, straightforward, but effective kind of dramatic pulse, really, when you've got that set up. It can, it can lead to some exciting to the cinema, really. I do have a soft spot for action cinema, and I guess cat and mouse thing fits a lot of action movies and thrillers and things, so it's a kind of catnip for me. <laughs> I certainly agree with all that you said. For cat and mouse movies, the tension is pretty immediate. You can often cut it with a knife, and that's, as you say, or you suggest, the plot is cut and dry. There are two clear opponents, each equal, 
but only one can win. Why should one win over the other is often manipulated by how the setup and we shall talk some of that for both movies. But also, since you have to have a cat and mouse for a cat and mouse movie, it tends to be more character-driven because it's not just about the plot. It's about the two characters who are at odds with each other. Even the Roadrunner and Coyote have very strong personality in many ways or their story wouldn't work. So it's like watching a football game or for you, a soccer game because the suspense is whether your side will win or not. Why did you choose this? Partly for a very selfish reason, is uh, it is a film I remember enjoying a lot at the cinema when it first came out, and I've just been keen to revisit it recently. I picked up the Blu-ray not too long ago and was keen to give it another watch, really. So it's a bit of a selfish reason, but also, as I say, I think I do have fond memories of it being quite spectacular. I guess we'll go into more detail later some of the qualities of it. I've always been quite a Peter Weir fan as well. I guess well, we might talk about that later too. So it's something that's always been in the back of my mind. And as I say, it was, it's been long due a rewatch. Well, that's certainly a reason why many people choose their films for the podcast. When did you first see it? When it first opened? Yeah, when it first opened. I can't remember the actual cinema. And you say you enjoyed it very much. I did, yes. It was kind of one of my favourites of that year, or up there at least. Well, I also saw it when it first came out. To be honest, I wasn't really looking forward to it. I like Peter Weir, but I'm not the fan that others are. He is hit and miss to me. And this genre of movie is not necessarily my favorite. Fighting ships at sea, especially period ones. For one thing, I always think is, where do they go to the bathroom? And what do they <laughs> use for toilet paper? That's, I guess, one of my neuroses. <laughs> I feel the same thing about Westerns. <laughs> but I was really surprised by how entertaining it is. It was excellently written, well-drawn characters, well-acted, and has an excellent sense of time and place. So we will find out there are some historical inaccuracies here. Okay, fair enough. One thing I did find interesting, I've got, an, I've got it on DVD as well as Blu-ray, but the DVD is incredible. There's loads and loads of extras. There's some interesting bits and pieces. But what I did find interesting is actually, although Peter Weir went as far out of his way as he could to make it as accurate and as detailed as he could and interestingly they did actually change this setting of the story films are set during the napoleonic wars whereas i think the books that he used for this were originally set during the war of 1812 no, no, uh, right. supposedly the producers wanted to avoid offending american audiences because originally the ship they were chasing was the uss norfolk so they obviously they changed it to a french privateer because we're allowed to hate the french in films i guess well, nobody likes the french so <laughs> And actually, that change is one of the things that leads to some historical inaccuracy. They're actually rather minor. They're not minor enough where I don't have a lot of fun pointing them out. And though it's a bit leisurely in the telling, I mean, it's more than two hours long, if I remember right, it's still quite fascinating. If you're not focused on who's going to win, there are the details of running the ship and issues with things like weather. So there's always something going on. Yeah, absolutely. As I say, I did like it a lot when I first saw it, but I did find it fairly long. And in my memory from the last time I'd seen before rewatching it, I seem to remember the Galapagos bits being a bit slower and maybe a bit unnecessary. But to be honest, on this recent rewatch, I actually really like those scenes, and I do think it it adds quite a lot to the film. And that change of pace is almost kind of is needed, and uh, it brings in some interesting ideas when you've got the clash between uh, Aubrey and the Paul Bettany character. I forgot his name. Uh, Maturin. Yes, that's the word. Or Maturin. Mm. You're English. Would it be Maturin or Maturin? Oh, I don't know. It, it sounds more like a French. Yes. It's, it yeah, it doesn't sound, sound like an English name. French name. Yeah, I don't know. And <laughs> I, I guess, guess in the book that character was actually a spy for the British against the French, as well as the Doctor. Oh right. 
the Galapagos Islands are really well done. And one thing I will discuss later is I think Peter Weir is very strong at nature. So the Galapagos Islands scene, I think, are very much something that Weir excels in as a filmmaker. Yeah, and they actually, they did shoot portions of it there. There are some where they cheated it and they shot it in Baja but, but there are um, oh, yes. but they did go over there and, and with a minimal crew and kind of did shoot some of the footage there and they had to paint the dragons black <laughs> in Baja yeah. what are some of your favorite scenes I did appreciate the Galapagos bits more than that usual but I am a sucker for the big naval battle scenes I've, I've got a projector at home and uh, I watch everything on there I've gotten too used to it now. I hate, I can't stand bear to watch anything on a TV anymore. Yeah, when you've got that on the big screen, cranking the sound up, it's very visceral, powerful stuff. Sometimes, be especially in the battle at the end, it can be a little confusing as to who's who. The actual fighting can get gets a bit manic in the end. But I feel like that's probably intentional to give that idea of that chaotic atmosphere and kind of adds to the intensity of it all. Those bits, as I say, I do have a soft spot for action cinema and. I do think the kind of set pieces in this are pretty spectacular and very, very well executed. The effects and things like that still hold up very well as well. It's, I mean, he tried to do certain things practically, but you still have to fake a lot when you're talking about big naval battles. Well, I can't argue with that. I have a lot of little scenes that I like. I like where Aubrey and Maturin are going to start playing their musical instrument. Mm. And below deck, the others just look at each other like, oh, they're going at it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the battle scene at the end, I like it when Midshipman Blakely, who seems barely 10 years old, is mm. given command of the ship and then he leads the charge onto the Akron. This part was played by Max Perkis, who left acting to go in distribution and sales in the movie industry. Yeah. That actually wasn't unusual to no. have people that young, the officers or lead men much older they, they are. Officers tended to come from the ruling classes. This was one occupation that was deemed a good one for the ruling classes to go into, but it wasn't easy to rise in the hierarchy. So the younger you could start, the more likely you are to rise up. He has to have his arm amputated quite right. early on in the film, so it kind of shows that these kids, they are pretty much just kids, would still have to face the same problems that everyone else did. Hits that note of brutality very early on. So like when Maturin removes his own bullet, oh, yeah. and I'm going, thank God, but because you, you don't want his medical assistant to do it yeah yeah and i also like the realization that they've been tricked by the french captain pretending to be the doctor though to be honest my memory is as soon as the doctor was introduced i said oh no he's really the captain <laughs> well the director is peter weir how do you feel about him do you have a favorite film by him how do you feel of him as a director i do like peter weir a lot a couple of his films i haven't seen yet but he does have a couple of Real big favourites for me in there. My favourite would be Picnic Hanging Rock. Love that film. I, there's just something about that kind of atmosphere, and it's one of my all-time favourites. And then close behind is The Truman Show, which is one, I, again, I remember watching it when it first came out, and I was 16 or something when it came out, and it really just worked for me. And then Master Commander's up there for me. I, not quite as much as those. Those two are kind of top 100 favourite films for me. The Dead Poets Society I've not seen for a long time. I remember liking it, but it's been far too long. Same with Witness. With a lot of his films, I just need to revisit them. Gallipoli as well. Like you're saying, he's a bit hit and miss. I think I've avoided some of his less kind of renowned ones because I'm worried that he'll let me down after being a huge fan. Well, I don't feel that he would necessarily let you down. As I said, I'm not as big a fan as Peter Weir is, but his films tend to be very entertaining, even if they may be lesser films. A green card is 
very entertaining and it's very well done. Whether it's worthy of Peter Weir's is another question. He came out of the Australian New Wave of the 1970s. You know, I remember growing up there, and at that time, there was a constant succession of countries with new waves mm, yeah. coming in. It was the French, the U.S., the German, the Polish, the Czech. It was just one right after another. Mm. The most recent ones we've had are the Romanian and the South Korean. He was first noticed for Picnic at Hanging Rock, not his first film, but he became an international success with The Year of Living Dangerously. He made 14 features, as well as the movies for television, and a number of his shorts. I've seen 12 of this film, okay. beginning with The Cars That Ate Paris. My favorite of him is actually Fearless. It, that's one that I, I just haven't got around to it. I've, I've wanted to watch that for a long time. and It did get released in the UK, but in the kind of Blu-ray era and stuff, it's kind of been passed by for whatever reason. It's basically about a man who goes through an existential crisis because he's one of only a handful of people who survive a plane crash. And Jeff Bridges is just great. Jeff Bridges was having a sort of renaissance mm. at this time. But I also like Master and Commander very much. We've covered The Truman Show on the podcast before. We combined it with Dark City, both about a central character who wakes up to a fake city every day. I enjoy it. It's everybody's favorite. It's not mine. I have certain issues with it. But if anybody wants to know what those are, go and listen to the podcast. So I think he's a fine director, not a great one, but he makes entertaining films. One reason why he may not achieve greatness, and you can let me know how you respond to this, is that there isn't a strong thematic genre or subject matter continuity that runs through his film. People have tried to find a connection. The usual one being that he does fish-out-of-water stories, but I never felt that his films are really fish-out-of-water stories. Even when he does what one would call fish-out-of-water, like Witness or Green Card, they don't feel like fish-out-of-water stories, like, for example, Local Hero. Romy Sutherland of Senses of Cinema said his films, including his Hollywood one, cannot be pigeonholed in terms of themes, genres, or geographical locale. And Andy Wire said the word almost can crop up a lot when talking about queer. He is almost a, he has made several almost classes, and he can almost always be relied upon to spin a good yarn, if nothing else. But there is a feeling that he falls just short of making the greatness on display in his best work. And on occasion, he becomes slightly anonymous behind the camera, allowing story or spectacle to power along seemingly under their own team. I know where you're coming from. I think for me, that was kind of why I liked him when I was young. His ability to turn his hand at anything and do a decent job of it. His lack of a kind of a signature, it means to me, it's, he's less of an obvious auteur. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think that makes him less of a good director. For me, he's almost a little bit like Michael Curti, who again, that's a, like... That's a very good comparison. Yeah, yeah. he didn't have that much of a signature style people don't often talk about him as a great director but if you look at his cv it's insane some of the films that he's made and people don't remember him because he doesn't have that kind of something like hitchcock or something like that or who they've got a dis really distinct style i think sometimes it can feel unfair to not see these directors dabble in bits of everything and do a decent job of it uh, kind of denigrate them just because they don't have that kind of auteur style kind of see them as a journeyman or as a kind of a, a director for hire. But I guess it depends on the film. As, again, like going back to watching the making of Master and Commander, you can see how dedicated he gets to these projects. He's put so much kind of effort and detail into into creating, into making this film. And you can tell he's a big fan of the book 
from, from what I gather. And when he was writing the script, he went to an antique shop in, the, in London and got loads of naval antiques around him to get that kind of feel for it. And he's a director who just wants to give something a shot. And when he does, he really throws himself into it. And I admire that, even if it's maybe he's not necessarily showing him in his films. Well, I yeah. think Michael Curtiz is an excellent comparison because when I see that a movie is directed by Michael Curtiz, my first thought is, well, it's not going to be a great movie, but it's going to be very entertaining and it's going to be very well done and I'm going to enjoy it. Mm. So if I haven't seen it, I'll often watch a Michael Curtiz film. I often won't watch them more than once, depending. And his biggest film is Casablanca, which some people say was an accidental great movie. It just happened that all these things came together perfectly to make a great movie beyond anybody's attempt at it. Same with Peter Weir. They're going to be entertaining films. They're going to be well-made. You won't be disappointed. But he's no Bergman. He's no Fellini, no Hitchcock, etc. And no, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that because they're above average and they're very entertaining. But I do think there's one area that I think to some degree does follow through on his film but perhaps not strong enough to define him. And he has this ability for me to film nature and wide open space. Yeah. And you have yeah. films like Hanging Rock and Gallipoli, Master and Commander, that are set against nature and wide open space. And you have films like Dead Poets Society with the feel of autumn and autumn colors. Sometimes that's the thing I remember about it is that it's fall. Fearless with a plane crash, the scene where Jeff Bridges steps on the edge of a building and Witness's most memorable scene is the barn building scene. Yeah. So he does have this Australian love of nature and open space. Yeah, yeah, I'll see that. There's, the Mosquito Coast, I guess, is another one. It's not one of his better films, but, but again, the location is almost the character. I guess another side you could see. I'm going backwards a bit, but Michael Curtis and Peter Weir, I think I see them as craftsmen rather than auteurs. Uh, right. So it's someone who's just really good at their job. It might be more the next film we're going to talk about rather than Master and Commander. A lot of the film is about men who are good at their jobs. We've got a captain who's very commanding. He does his thing like people listen to him. He's respected. You've got the doctor who knows his stuff and he's respected by the captain. And That could be part of it. I'm going to certainly be talking more about that sort of thing. But it is, yes, a very definite comparison between the two films, between Master and Commander and The Enemy Below. They are about male camaraderie. Neither of them have any women in the film. Though in the book, Master and Commander, there are female characters at the book. Have you read any of the books that have interest? No. If I tend to read genre books, I go to mystery or science fiction. So, yeah. But they're very popular. On Kindle, I do have the first couple on there. But I just haven't got around to them yet. Weir has officially announced that he has retired. People don't necessarily agree as to why. According to Charles Barfield of The Playlist, after the financial failure of Master Commander and his next film, The Way Back, he had trouble getting support for another film and basically retired. But Ethan Hawke gives another reason. And he said in July 2022, I think Weir lost interest in movies. He really enjoyed that work when he didn't have actors giving him a hard time. Russell Crowe and Johnny Depp broke him. Weir was the tech direct Shantaram, which starred Johnny Depp. But after developing that film for a while, Weir left due to creative differences. But Weir said after he got his special Oscar and was talking to the Sydney Morning Herald, he said that Hawk, quote, must have been taken out of context. I find it puzzling. He said the reason for his retirement is that, quote, for film directors like Volcano, there are three major stages. Active, 
dormant and extinct. And I think I've reached the latter. Another generation is out there calling action and good luck to them. So he went from helping start a new wave to retiring as another new wave was coming around. Screenplay is by Weir and John Colley. I don't know if you're familiar with John Colley, but he also worked on Happy Feet, creation about Charles Darwin, Walking with Dinosaurs, and Hotel Mumbai. How did you feel about screenplay? I enjoyed it. I think it's a film that's more about character than narrative, but I think that works. A lot of that is down to the script. I think it's partly all the performance as well. There's some good character actors in there, and I guess we might talk about them later, but they I do like the central performances. I've never been one that's better at analysing the nuts and bolts than the screenplays myself. But in terms of, I, I didn't really have any problems. There were no shoddy kind of lines that stood out. As I say, although the narrative isn't incredibly strong, it's strong enough to draw you in and keep you watching for almost two and a half hours. Generally speaking, it does work for me, but the second time around, and this is the second time I've seen it, is for me the weakness is some of the scenes and dialogue, especially between Aubrey and Maturin, because I was sometimes rolling my eyes at their argument. You made a promise, and not keeping your promise, and they're talking about the right and wrongness of things, and these felt a little bit forced to me, and I kept saying, Let, let's go, let's go, let's go. They weren't as interesting to me. The San Francisco Chronicle film reviewer praised Weir's handling of scenes with no dialogue, but then said Weir is less sure-footed as screenwriter. Having not read any of O'Brien's novels, I can't say the fault is in Weir's adaptation or in the source material. But halfway into Master and Commander, the friendship of the captain and the doctor begins to seem schematic, as if all the positive traits that an individual could have were divided equally between the two guys, just so they can argue. And once that happens, the story involving the friendship loses much of its interest and all of its danger, and the movie starts taking in water. I think that's overdoing it, but I think he has a point. I don't know. I, I kind of like the scenes with them together, but at the same time, I, I know what you mean. What they're talking about is quite on the nose, but I think I like the idea of the scenes more than the execution, because when he's on deck with the rest of the crew, Aubrey has to be the commander. And he's good at it. He's having to keep his ship rolling. And I like the idea that the the one guy who he's superior in a different way, like in an intellectual sense, is someone that he can talk to and get things off his chest. I think the kind of musical side of things, things kind of brings them alive more than maybe the dialogue. Well, the film is drawn from mainly three novels, but the main plot is from the 10th novel, The Far Side of the World. There doesn't seem to be a real-life captain to match Aubrey, but two naval captains... Captain Thomas Cochran and Captain William Woolsey are often claimed to be the models for him. Cochran used the ruse of placing a light on a floating barrel at night to avoid capture, and Woolsey aboard HMS Papillon disguised a ship under his command as a commercial boat on discovering information that a rogue ship was on the other side of a small island. He then sailed around the island and captured the Spanish ship in 1805. But from everything I've read from a technical standpoint, the film is incredibly accurate in detail on how the ships are run, how they respond to everything, how battles are fought. And it's one of the top pluses of the film. I think that's one of the main things I like about it. I'm usually not that bothered about things being period detail or anything like that. It's not necessarily the period details that make me enjoy the film. But at the same time, I think he's gone to such a level with the details it's helped create what I like most about the film is just the kind of atmosphere. It feels like you're on that boat with those guys. I think that's partly why I don't mind its length and I just get involved with it because I just kind of enjoy being there on the ship. As I say, the, the battle scenes were very impressive, again, because it made it feel like you were there. They even bought 
like a ship, but they had to do some other ones as well. They had to do, um, they had to have a rigged one that they could on hydraulics for some of the more complicated scenes. And, and they had some uh, large scale models and things like that as well. And some, they even sent the cast on a bit of a mini voyage to kind of get them used to working as a team. But as we said, there are historical inaccuracies as well. And you mentioned the main one. The conflict in the book takes place during the War of 1812, with Aubrey battling the USS Norfolk, or what we in America term it Old Ironside. Yeah. It was changed to the Napoleonic Wars in 1805 to, as you say, not offend American audience. But as a result, when young William Blakely receives the biography of Nelson, he gets it roughly a year before it was published. <laughs> Captain Jack also recounts serving with Lord Nelson in the Nile as a teenager or in his early 20s, but the engagement discussed happened just six years before the movie. <laughs> Maybe Crow just looks older than he is. <laughs> yes. At the end of the film, the captured Acheron is sent to the Spanish colonial port of Valparaiso in Chile. But Valparaiso was still very underdeveloped. By 1805, its real growth into a port didn't start until a decade later. And it was also Spanish. In the Napoleonic Wars, the Spanish would be allies with France. You would never send a ship to Valparaiso. It didn't do well at the box office. It did make a profit, but it didn't make enough of profit. Yeah, they were hoping for a franchise, I guess, because yes. there are so many novels. But it's become more and more popular through renting and streaming as time goes on. And we might want to talk about this a little bit. In the summer of 2020, Vulture noted that the film is ripe for reappraisal. A March 2023 story in GQ said the film's popularity continued among millennial men who watched the film on streaming services. The theory is that it portrayed non-toxic masculinity and strong male friendship, particularly the one between Aubrey and Maturin. Quote, overall, the masculinity of Master and Commander is overwhelmingly wholesome and positive, reporter Gabriel Paella wrote. Quote, any nostalgia for the traditionalism in the movie is less reactionary and more about the healthy male bonding between the characters. And this was contrasted with continued problems with male bonding among 2020s American men, which in the U.S. we're constantly talking about as being too toxic. In the movie, the masculinity is healthy, but it's because it's not toxic. Mm. And I was on a podcast where we talked about the Shawshank Redemption, which also didn't do well in the theater. But it found a second home on rentals and streaming. And I was asked why I thought it would become so popular. And I said that it was the tearjerker for straight men. It was a love story that men could admit to in private, but not on the big screen. And that may be true here. In private, you can admit, oh, you know, I really like that. I don't feel threatened by that. But you can't really necessarily admit that in a theater. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that could be true. Do you have a favorite performance? I do like Paul Bettany in general. I think he does well here. I think he kind of bounces off. Well, well, I do like Russell Crowe in it. I think he's solid. He's well cast. He feels like a captain kind of character. He feels like he's got that strength and that commanding uh, presence. I don't think it's necessarily a hugely nuanced performance. Paul Bettany, it might just be because he stands out among the film. He's very different from the rest of the characters. But that kind of made his performance stand out for me. What about in the supporting cast? Oh, Blakeney is probably the one who kind of gets possibly most of the screen time away from Crow and Bettany. For such a young actor, he does do a very good job, considering how he must have been, I don't know, 12 or something like that. He, it's impressive. There's the guy who commits suicide. Right, the Jonah. It's such an, an ensemble piece, really. It kind of feels almost more about the crew than just individual characters, although you do get a few little strands coming in and out. It just gave me this thought that one of the comparisons between the two movies is that in this, yes, 
they don't really stand out. They work as an ensemble. They work as a team. They don't necessarily push their performance. They're very even killed. Whereas in the enemy below, everybody seems to really be pushing it mm. and wanting the audience to say, look at me, look at me, with dialogue that's often very on the nose. Mm. <laughs> but I also like Richard McCabe, who the surgeon's mate, you know, this jovial guy, very nice, but you wouldn't want him to remove a bullet. Uh, yeah. And I agree about Max Perkis. He really stands out for me. In trying to find men who looked as though they were from the 19th century, we're recruited many extras from Poland because British men tend to look a bit more healthy. Uh, and all of the actors were given a thorough grounding in the naval life of the period in order to make their performances as authentic as possible. How do you feel about the cinematography? This is by Russell Boyd. He's a frequent collaborator with Peter Weir. I think it looks fantastic. I guess, well, that might be digital cinematography, but some of the wide shots of the boats, it makes great use of fog and the elements, obviously. Peter Weir supposedly took uh, inspiration for some of the visuals from painting. I think in general, it's it's got a very natural kind of look. It feels like it's natural light, but still kind of looks beautiful at the same time. There's some nice play with shadows kind of going for this realistic atmosphere. And I think that's carried through in the film. I mean, it I won the Oscar for that, I think, didn't it? That and uh -huh. sound editing. Yes, it did. And I agree with you. I think he does a magnificent job of capturing how the ship works, the battle scenes, the stories scenes, life on board ship like Weir. I think he has an affinity for stories that take place around nature. He's also Australian. He did a cinematography for Tender Mercy. And actress Tess Harper said, Boyd was so quiet during filming that he mostly used only three words. Yeah, right, and sure. <laughs> He's also known for Crocodiles and D and Tin Cup, and a number of other films. I think his best work is with Peter Weir. I'm not sure he's quite climbing to the top tier as cinematographers, but he's always very good. And it should be noted that he had great help, I think, from the editor, Lee Smith, the sound designer, designer Richard King. Lee yeah. Smith is a major editor. He is known for uh, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, and the stellar Dunkirk. He, if he isn't, he is going to become one of the major editors of this period. Yeah, absolutely. Film And, and you mentioned the sound design as well. I mean, that was the other Oscar it won. Sound editing. Again, throws you in there. There's so much, so much detail in there. It really throws you into the world. He also worked on The Dark Knight, Inception, and Dunkirk, and he got Oscar nominations for those. He was also nominated for War of the Worlds and Interstellar. For this film, he went to great lengths to record realistic sounds. They found actual period cannons, and they would mm. shoot them off and record those. The music, there are three people, I think, uh, responsible for the music. And some of it's original, some of it's, I think, classical. But Richard Tognetti, who scored the film's music, taught Crow how to play the violin. Crow purchased the violin personally as the budget did not allow for the expense. The violin was made in 1890 by the Italian violin maker Leandro Messiac and sold at auction in 2018 for $104,000. Mm. The rumor is that he had to sell it off for the divorce to pay <laughs> for his divorce. And Bentley also learned how to play cello. But of course, the final music was dubbed. Again, in the make, it mentions that quite a lot. You see quite a lot of footage of Crow learning the instrument. So he was a musician anyway. He, has, he had a band, didn't he? <laughs> not, maybe not the best band in the well, world. Well, some so, people so he, call the band. <laughs> yeah. Still, it's quite an impressive feat for the film. I do like the music a lot. I think it's quite a nice balance of using the classical pieces. It's both the ones that, that Aubrey and... Um, I still can never remember his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah the, the, the pieces they play and there's also some other kind of pieces that feed in there it's, it's unusual how there's three composers there. it's quite rare that you get that uh, i did see in the documentary i can't remember exactly the reason but they kind of do discuss that tognetti who taught chrome Don't violin I think possibly he handled the use of classical music and the kind of string-based stuff, whereas the other guys... One probably composed the score that is original, and one probably did the song. And you were talking about the use of real boats, and yes, uh, filming took place on the open sea, the Galapagos Islands, and on replica ship in the water tanks of Baja Studios, which was built for the filming of Titanic. During the film's pre-production, the replica of Captain James Cook's ship, HMS Endeavour, was circumnavigating the globe. The production was able to fly two cameramen to the ship as it was about to sail around on the bottom of South America, a route the HMS surprise take in the film. Thus, the footage of the stormy seas from that part of the voyage is genuine. The Endeavour sailors were used in costume, kept on board for displays. Robert Ebert gave the film four stars out of four, saying that it achieves the epic without losing sight of the human. I think that I really do agree with that. That's what it feels to me. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw praised the film and Crow's performance. New York Times critic A.O. Scott described the film as stupendously entertaining. However, party pooper Jason Epstein, also writing for the New York Times, criticized the film, taking issue with changes from the novel, Crow's one-dimensional action hero, and implausible events in the script. The most implausible being, uh, as most historians say, in the first battle between the Surprise and Acheron, there's no way the Surprise would have survived and gotten away. Mm. But with that, here's more information about the movie. It cost $150 million to make. I made $211.6 million. So it made a profit, but not enough of one. Master and Commander received 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Director, and Best Visual Effect. It won the awards for Best Cinematography, and best sound editing, but lost the rest to The Return of the King. I think they're lucky to have won the two they did. Yeah. <laughs> the film also garnered We Are the BAFTA Award for Best Direction. It received eight BAFTA nominations and won six. Master and Commander was the first non-documentary film to shoot on location in the Galapagos. The song sung in the war room is Don't Forget Your Old Shipmates, a British Navy song written in the early 1800s. The tunes sung and played by the crew on deck at night are O'Sullivan's March, Spanish Ladies, and the British Tar. Spanish Ladies, I always recognized from Jaws. As soon as that came on, I was like, Jaws. <laughs> Russell, as we said, Russell Crowe learned to play violin for the film, and he called it the hardest thing he'd ever done for a film. The name of the French vessel, Acheron, comes from the name of a river in Hades in Greek mythology. The other river was the stick. Both rivers could only be crossed by boat. Touching or drinking from the river would cause the victim to lose their memory. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is The Enemy Below. However, first we are going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. And while we are doing that, take this time to like, follow, or comment on the podcast. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. 
Welcome back. First, some information about the film. The Enemy Below is a war film released in 1957. It was directed from du and produced by Dick Powell and written by Wendell Mays, based on the novel The Enemy Below by Dennis Rayner. It stars Robert Mitchum, Kurt Jurgen, Theodore Bakel, David Hedison, Russell Collins, Kurt Kruger, Frank Albertson, Biff Elliott, Ralph Mansa, Doug McClure, and an uncredited Daryl F. Sanak. During World War II, the destroyer USS Haines comes upon a German U-boat that, unknown to them, is heading to intercept a German raider to get a code book. While the Haines is commanded by the new Captain Morell, who has yet to prove himself in battle and to his men, the U-boat is commanded by a world-weary German officer, von Stolberg, the men love and respect. As the two ships play cat and mouse, which commander will take the other out? What do you think of the pairing of the two films? How do they compare? What are their differences and similarities? I, I thought it was very well paired. A film I hadn't seen before. So I was glad you picked it out. I was like watching a new movie. The obvious similarity is kind of my side of things. I also felt that they both seemed to to try and recreate that feeling of being on, on ship. Enemy Below, I don't know. I don't know enough details of the actual behind the scenes. It's kind of facts, but it did feel like there were certainly some elements that were shot on the sea or at least on a tank or whatever. It shows the detail of the workings of the ship. I quite like the touches where the commander would come up with something they'd want to happen. He'd speak to his the next in line. They would pass it on to someone else who would do a bit of knob twiddling or whatever, and then they'll pass on to someone else. It kind of showed the working to the ship, and um, again, kind of giving this sense of reality that you had mastering commanders. So I actually watched the film uh, that I'll talk about later before watching The Enemy Below, and when, when I watched that other film, I thought, oh, this would have made a really good pairing. But then I watched The Enemy Below, and I was like, oh no, this is definitely a better pairing. It does have differences, though, of obviously the modern setting. Um, but I think the biggest difference is obviously the fact that this film spends half the time with on the American ship, and then half the time on this German submarine, which gives it a totally different feel. You, the film is about these two men and their battle, whereas in Master and Commander, they're just like a phantom. Eh? They, they make a point of, kind of calling it this phantom ship. It's almost like a, a ghost ship that they're just tracking down that maybe doesn't really exist, except when it kind of pummels them now and again. I think all that is very true, especially when talking about that in the enemy below, the German commander gets almost as much time as the U.S. commander. And they're both very realistic in detailing how these sh ships work, operate, how they would do battle. They both also received Oscars for their sound. Both movies changed nationalities of some aspect of the story. In the book, The Enemy Below, the destroyer escort is changed from British to American, and in Master and Commander, the French ship is American in the book. They both used deception at the climax. I thought that was really interesting. The HMS Surprise disguises itself as a whaling vessel, while the Haynes pretends to be on fire and pretends to be disabled. Yeah, it's a nice little touch with the... Um... Uh, the map fire. I did like that little, uh, yeah. that little move at the end. And they both have song, and it's hard to have something at sea without them breaking out into some sort of song. Mm. There are two areas where we might talk a little more, and one is to contrast and compare the leader. We have Lieutenant Commander Merle, who does the Haynes in the Enemy Below. The name can be translated as Sea Bright, and Captain Aubrey, the name meaning Elf King. I don't know if that's why they chose it. Yeah. And we can also talk about the enemy leaders, though, as you said. We only see the French captain once, and he doesn't seem to have a name. But the German U-boat commander is almost as much time as Merle, and his name is von Stolberg, which could mean miners or of the mine, which is an underground occupation like manning a submarine. But what are your thoughts on these four people and how they're like and how they're different? 
I mentioned earlier about how Russell Crowe seems like a quite an obvious kind of casting and I did like him very much. I think he does a, he does a great job with films like Gladiator and things like that. He has this commanding kind of presence. Robert Mitchum seems an unusual choice to me. I mean, he is a commanding presence, but I guess with his history and things like that, you see more of a self-serving kind of guy, a bit more of a rebel. So he seems an odd choice to be a captain of a of, of smoothly operating vessel and kind of working with a crew of people. But it works. It gives film a little bit of a different feeling. And they kind of play on that as well. At the beginning of the film, at least, there are a few mentions there. People call him further mention. We were in the Merchant Marine. They were a warship, but they transported goods. Yes. So people doubt him at the beginning. Through his ingenuity in battle and to people, the crew, they come round him. Rather, Robert Mitchum's an actor. I can just watch in anything anyway. So <laughs> Jürgen's this is a solid job. I wouldn't say it was an outstanding performance. You see, but he's well cast. His character's in, it's interesting, I mean, this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but one thing they do with his character is, because they want, obviously the, the makers want him to be a sympathetic character so that we care about the German side as much as the American side, they go out of their way to make sure that he's not a super Nazi kind of character. He gives a lot of dodgy looks to, I don't know the name of the character, but there's another, one of his guys in the crew is like a an uber Nazi. He's always saluting and uh, following all the, uh, the things you'd expect uh, from a, a regulation. Yeah, the rules and regulation. There's a sign that like says Führer or something. It, it doesn't translate exactly what it is, but he hides it, doesn't he? I watch it's this over part of it. Yes. So the film straight away wants to show you that he's not really a Nazi. He's just doing his job. And I kind of touched on this earlier. That's kind of what this film does, I think, maybe even more so than Master and Commander. It feels like this is about men doing their duty, doing their job, and doing it really well. It's a, Jürgens is one of these, and he, all he cares about is his what his duty and his men. He doesn't care about Hitler. Those are great observations. It wasn't unusual if you were going to have a German officer or commander that you wanted the audience to sympathize for. They would do things like that. If you were an officer at the top, it certainly helps to be a member of the Nazi party, but it wasn't required. And since he was doing this long before the Nazis came to power, he never joined. And you're right, he's just a German doing his job. He doesn't have a moral stance in it. And to a certain degree, they do the same thing for Morel by making him world-weary. He's also like, let's just get this done so we can get home. Both of the captains just want to get the job done so they can get home. Yeah, I guess that's where it differs to Master and Commander, where he's kind of obsessed, like they should be going back home. But Aubrey's like, no, it's very stubborn. Well, you're right. And master and commander these are people who are making it their life's work to be in the navy and this is when they come alive and the enemy below it's more an interruption in their life and in both movies both morell and aubrey do have a chance in the conflict aubrey was not supposed to go around south america but he kept on going in the same way morell is also told well, you don't really have to chase after. But Morel said, no, we're going to go get it. But in talking about these issues that you've brought up, uh, which are excellent, we could also talk about the film in the context of the time they were made. Master Commander, though written before, was released in 2003. And it was an American film. It may be British people on the ship, and it may be a British story, but it was financed by America. It was made by Americans, produced by Americans. 9-11 was in 2001. And in March 2003, we attacked Iraq. But after years of movies about Vietnam and the atrocities there and the horrors of war, there seemed to be a sudden nostalgia for America being the good guy 
in the war with movies like American Sniper, The Hurt Locker, The Zero Dark Thirty. There are still criticisms, but we aren't really the bad guys, which is ironic since there is no reason for us to invade Iraq. And though Master and Commander is about a British conflict in which the Americans are totally removed, as I said, it was an American film aimed at American audience. And The Enemy Below was released in 1957. And the U.S. was going through an existential crisis with postmodernism sneaking up on it. After the war, and it's not just the war, it was also World War One and the Depression and the rise of Stalinism, nationalism, Nazism, fascism, and then the dropping of the atomic bomb. There was an undercurrent that there was just something wrong. So after the films about World War II, they weren't critical of the war. It's hard to be critical of World War II. Hard to say the Americans should never have gone into World War II. But they were often a bit darker and even more cynical. You know, we have films like The Battle of the Bulge and From Fear to Eternity, Palace for Heroes, that were showing just how terrible the war could be. They were a bit more honest they were during the war. And here in The Enemy Below, we have this U.S. captain who just says, let's just get this done with and go home. And if we never have to do this again, and you have the German U-boat captain saying, you know, I'm not sure exactly why we're here, but we're doing our duty, and all we want to do is get through this and go home. Neither were happy with the war. And obviously you've got the end as well, when the kind of fight is done. One don't necessarily team up, but Morel saves Stolberg from going down with the ship and brings him on and they even have a, a kind of a, a funeral for some of the German soldiers and things. It's, it shows a kind of camaraderie because it's, it's a mutual respect. I guess the film is all about the mutual respect between two opponents. It's really. you can show more in the 1950s yeah. than you might have been able to show during the war. Oh yeah, you could never never would have made this in, in the early 40s. Yeah. I take it you recently first saw the film and what did you think of it? I liked it quite a lot. I, I must admit, I'm not usually one for kind of war films, particularly pre-70s war films. I'm usually a bit wary of. They can be a bit overly patriotic, a bit overly blunt and not quite as realistic as some later films. And I thought the kind of jumping between the American and the Germans was a nice touch. It made it a bit more unique. And again, as I say, I'm always a fan of this kind of stripped back approach and appreciated that here. It was just really just about that, that cat and mouse chase. It, did better a great deal than anything else. There weren't many superfluous subplots. It just kind of stuck to its guns. It shows its age in places. I think the, the dialogue's a bit on the nose. I must expect okay. that. Yeah. I kind of expect that, though, from films of that era, especially war films of that era. So I, I didn't mind it. It was passable for me just because just of what it was. But on the whole, as I say, I enjoyed it a lot more than I expected. I can't remember exactly when I first saw it, but it must have been in the early 60s on television. And I say this because I was a fan of the Star Trek television series. And in 1966, they had an episode called Balance of Terror, which was basically a cat and mouse conflict between the Enterprise and a Romulan vessel. And the Romulan vessel could be seen due to their cloaking device. If you don't know much about the series Star Trek, no, that may mean anything to you. But there's one moment when they're supposed to be absolutely quiet. And Spock accidentally hits a button and makes a noise. And then Kirk tells everyone to make a noise. And when I saw that, I thought, I've seen this movie. <laughs> and yes, Balance of Terror is based on The Enemy Below. The second time I've seen it, I think it's a perfectly fine and entertaining film. But a previous guest I had in here called a decent programmer. You're right, dialogue and direction feel a bit dated and even awkward. But as you say, it tells us something about the context of the time. Do you have some favorite scenes? 
the scene you mentioned where they all have to be quiet and it, it, it uses the sound design. I imagine that scene is why it got that Oscar, I think, because it, it makes you really think about the audio. It's often the case where they give Oscars to sound is sometimes when it's a film with quieter moments because you kind of appreciate that. I did like that moment. It, it had a suitable tension. As I say, it's been done before. I think other films and TV shows have kind of taken that idea. Das Boot, I think, has a moment like that as well. I, I did like some of Morell's techniques of trying to get Stolberg and the um, particularly kind of the burning the matches to make their ship look more damaged than it was. Especially because yes. he couldn't see the ship, unlike in Master and Commander, where he yeah. can actually see the ship. He can't see the ship, and all they have is radar. Yeah. He has to do some real thinking about where is this ship going to be at any particular time. And it's also the reverse. They, until they go up the periscope, the German U-boat can't see the American ship and they have to rely on radar as well. And I agree with all that. There are two little scenes that I always like where they compare in certain ways, maybe the different classes. One is where the officers play bridge and the enlisted men play poker. And one scene where one sailor is reading the decline and fall of the Roman Empire while the officer is reading a comic book. <laughs> so the ending is over the top, but it's a lot of fun. Now, the director was Dick Powell, and I'd say, how do you feel about him? But I bet you've never seen any of his other films. He oh, only what? did four. But how do you feel about his directing here? It's solid. It does the job. As I say, I found it an enjoyable kind of well-paced. I might be the wrong word, but it didn't necessarily do anything super special. There's quite a cool shot sometimes when it, it pulls back with all the doors closed in the submarine. Yeah. So there's a few nice little flourishes in there. But yeah, he's not very particularly, other than, than some of those little moments, he's not a particularly showy director uh, in a visual sense. Good good sense of pace. Yeah, there's really not that much to say about him as a director. As I said, he made only four films. I have only seen two. One is called Split Second and The Enemy Below. Uh, and they're both entertaining enough, but not particularly impressive. But Dick Powell, in many ways, has to be admired because he reinvented himself twice. At first, he was known for his crooning and playing a theater juvenile, which is the male equivalent of an ingenue, in such films as 42nd Street, Footlock Parade, and Gold Diggers in 1933. But as World War II was playing itself out, he knew he was getting too old for this. And after failing to get the lead in Double Indemnity, he fought to play the lead in Murder My Sweet, being the first person to play Philip Marlowe by name on screen. And Murder My Sweet is based on Farewell My Lovely, but they changed the name to Murder My Sweet because they didn't want anybody to think it was a musical since it was starring Dick Powell. And from then on, he went on to play hardball roles in film noir. Then he stopped acting and became a director. And he might have kept going longer as a director, but he developed cancer and died in 1963. There is talk that he got the cancer while filming The Conqueror, which was released in 1956. One third of the cast got cancer and died from it. The movie was made during atom bomb testing in Nevada. Not everybody agrees that it was the atomic bombs and people at that time smoke like crazy and there are other things, but a lot of people believe that this was a major cause for people like Agnes Moorhead, John Wayne, Susan Hayward, and uh, Dick Powell. But if that wasn't bad enough, The Conqueror is considered one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> it stars John Wayne as Genghis Khan. <laughs> Need I say more? I used to have this golden turkey book. Um, yes. I remember that that was in there. I think it's also in the 100 worst films of all time. So the screenplay is by Wendell Mays. You've talked about how tight the film is and, and that it gives a good feeling for life on the ship. How do you feel about the screenplay overall? Well, as I mentioned, I think the, the dialogue could do <laughs> with some work, but yes. the script is 
part of the reason why it kind of moves along quite nicely. It's a bit of a no-nonsense affair, and I, I do appreciate that. I do. I've mentioned earlier, I kind of like more of a stripped-back approach. This is not his best uh, screenplay by any means. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it just looks him up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anatomy of a Murder is probably his greatest achievement. Mm. He never quite came up to that level again, though he wrote solid and entertaining films, some of the better ones being The Hanging Tree, Advice and Consent, and Harm's Way. He was writing during a period when, as I said, the U.S. was going through an existential crisis, though it didn't realize it. It's not until the 60s and 70s that the U.S. realized, oh, we're going through an existential crisis. But it actually was during this period. And a lot of his movies fit into that a questioning of the U.S. and a criticism of some aspects of it. So he didn't get, go as far as others did. But even Anatomy of a Murder, in which there almost is no morality in that film, is sort of the way the U.S. was going. And then he later worked on some iconic films like The Poseidon Adventure and Death Wish. So he's not a great writer, but he did some important films. Quite an interesting mix as well. You wouldn't have thought the writer of the uh, enemy below would have made death wish but yeah yes that does seem a little odd they did shoot two endings okay. and one of them both of the commanders died. morel tries to save von stolberg when stolberg is drowning and they both go under and die the other one is the one we see in the film and dick powell shot two films and showed them to different audiences and let the audience decide mm. which to use and then both drowning would be highly symbolic and very memorable but I don't think anybody would recommend the film mm. with that. It just, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I know. I mean, it kind of would work, but but would be uh, a bit of a downer. I think with the ending as it is, it's on the surface. I mean, it, it is kind of corny. In reality, I'm sure there'd be a bit more, especially between the two crews, there'd be a bit more hostility between each other. But I think it kind of pulls it off. I think you're right. I think it's nonsense, but the film pulls it off, and it's a lot of fun, and it works. Work. The screenplay differs and substantially from the original book. But the main one is at the ending, where in the book, the destroyer captain, Morel, and Stolberg are on the same lifeboat. Morel takes a swing at Stolberg because the U-boat captain claims that the destroyer crewmen are his prisoners. Well, Morel is saying, no, you're our prisoners. And they might have been the Germans' prisoners because Stolberg was expecting some German ships to arrive at any moment. But instead, the U.S. ships show up first, so that was that. The screenplay has historical precedent. On 6th of May, 1944, the U.S. Buckley rammed and sank a U-boat in combat before capturing many of the German crew, and the USS Bory rammed a U-boat and sank it. The blog site dusted off, praised the film, saying the sheer authenticity of it all. The Enemy Below was based on a book written by a man, Dennis Rayner, who had spent part of World War II fighting at sea in the Atlantic, and both the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Navy helped in the making of the film. Everything about it Therefore, is very real. At only a couple of places did I find myself thinking this is a set. The action, especially the USS Haynes dropping depth charges that heave fountains of seawater, the U-boat diving, the torpedo streaking across the sea, all very real. And I did like that one scene, the first time they shot torpedoes at the, the Haynes, and the captain was ready for it and told them to turn the boat, and you're waiting to see if the torpedoes are going to hit mm, yeah, yeah. the Haynes and they don't. For the acting, we've actually talked some about that. Do you have any other favorites other than, you know, you've talked about the two leads and how you like both of those. For Robert Mincham, you actually make a point that before this, he tend to be a bad guy, a rebel, etc., etc. 
he got arrested for weed and was put in jail, but it didn't hurt his career because nobody mm. was surprised. <laughs> no. <laughs> and if it had been somebody who was clean cut, that could have hurt their career. But, oh, that Mitchum. But this actually was one of the movies that started him into making more movies where he did play Commander and things of that nature. To be honest, nobody else really stands out too much for me no. other than those two. I just recognize Doug McClure because he was on some television shows that I used to watch. I think I'm just looking at the cast list now. Russell Collins looks familiar. I think he was in quite a lot around there. There's a lot of familiar faces. Oh, yeah, he was in Bad Day Black Rock, yeah. And Failsafe, yeah, I've seen a couple of his films recently, I think that's why. <laughs> um, Kurt Jurgens, who played von Stolberg, had been an actual critic of Nazism in Germany, but he was making films there. And in 1944, after filming uh, Wiener Maldown or something like that, he got into an argument with Robert Kaltenbrunner, brother of high-ranking Austrian SS official Ernst Kaltenbrunner, as well as SS Obersternbahnfuhrer, God, those German rank Otto Gorzini and a member of Balder von Schirach's staff in a Viennese bar without knowing who they were. He was arrested and sent to a labor camp in Hungary. After a few weeks, he managed to escape and went into hiding, and he became an Austrian citizen after the war. How did you feel about the cinematography? It was by Harold Rosen. Yeah, I think they did a good job. As I say, there were two nice shots in there. there was, as I say, there was that one pulling back because the doors are closing. And there's also a cool shot that um, I should have mentioned earlier is when it kind of follows the Americans. They're, they're fishing and it follows the fishing rod and then goes down underneath to show the sub. I guess that's more of an effect shot. It was nice. That's a good shot, yeah. It has that kind of 50s sheen to it that I'm not a massive fan of, but like much of the film was competently done. And there's a few nice little is in there. And as I say, it felt like they were on a real ship. Rawson was one of the most important cinematographers of the golden years of Hollywood. And I'm not sure he's getting enough credit. He did films like The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, Dinner at Eight, The Asphalt Jungle, and many, many others. We covered his film No Time for Sergeant on Pop Art not too long ago. But I do tend to agree with you. It feels a little more like just a workmanlike job here. I think sometimes with the early, uh, well, it's not that early colour, but um, when they're really going to town with technical, I think sometimes they blasted so much light on there, it just kind of flattens things a bit because they're more concerned with getting colour than with getting any nuance. Or... The the kind of depth charge scenes were really impressive. The massive explosion. And it should be also mentioned, the music is by Lee Adrian Harline, one of those nice war-inspired symphonic scores that's fun to listen to. He's known for a number of films, but especially for Sleeping Beauty, and he co-wrote the score for Pinocchio, including, I believe, When You Wish Upon Upon a Star. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $1,900,000 to make, but I don't know how much money it made or how successful it was. I really can't find any information on that. For the audio effects, Walter Ross received the 1958 Academy Award for Best Special Effects. This was the American debut of German actor Kurt Jurgens. The tune sung by the U-boat crew on the ocean floor between depth charge attacks is from an 18th century march called Der Dessauer March. The burial hymn for the final scene is Ich hat einen Kameraden, which I believe means I had a comrade or friend. Destroyer USS Haynes was represented in the film by the USS Whiter, provided by the U.S. Navy in Pearl Harbor. Many of the actual ship's crew appear in the film, such as the phone talkers, the gun, and depth charge crews, and all of the men seen abandoning ship. The Whiter's commanding officer 
Lieutenant Commander Walter Smith played the engineering officer. He is the man seen reading comics, Little Orphan Annie, during the lull for the action. That's one of the reasons why it has a great deal of authenticity. So with that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your selection that might interest our audience. Well, I'm going to go with one that I just accidentally ended up watching a week or so before I kind of cracked on with these two films. And that's The Long Voyage Home uh, by John Ford. So yeah, it's from 1940. This isn't a cat and mouse film, so it is different. But at the same time, it's a film set largely at sea. It's different. It's more of an episodic film. There's a few kind of little, small, short narratives within the longer story. But, But at the same time, it rided on this sense of camaraderie it's not quite as realistic at the same time there's still some authenticity to it is it, is it one you've seen you, do you know it came to it a bit late because it wasn't shown very much so eventually it showed up i think on tcm and i watched it there it's based on some eugene o'neill shorts yes i think it lost a lot of the eugene o'neill and was replaced by the John Ford sentimentality, yeah. but it's a very lovely film. It works very well. Yeah, it looks very nice as well. It's very nicely shot. Um, it has a nice supporting cast. Mm, yeah. I chose three. One is one that takes place at sea. The other two are more familiar cat and mouse. Bedford Incident is from 1965, directed by James B. Harris. It's about a reporter who is given the assignment to go on an American destroyer and do a story basically on the captain and the ship. While he's there, they run across a Soviet submarine caught by late territorial water. And the captain starts playing a cat and mouse game with it. He's not necessarily there to destroy it, but he is uh, to really go after this submarine. Ending is shocking. The ending is really, really shocking. I won't reveal it. One of the things that's interesting about it is the reporter is played by Sidney Poitier, and many people consider it the very first film in which a black actor plays a character who happens to be black, but it's unimportant that he's black. Because being black has absolutely nothing to do with the story. The next one is one that a lot of people know, of course, Duel by Steven Spielberg. Uh, came out in 1971, in which a business commuter is pursued and terrorized by the driver of a massive tractor trailer for reasons that make no sense and he can't even see the driver. And finally, I have The French Connection from 1971, in which Jane Hackman plays Jimmy Popeye Doyle, who is trying to get the goods on a wealthy French heroin smuggler. What's next? What should we be expecting from you? Over at Blueprint Review, I I kind of business as usual, just reviewing boutique Blu-ray releases. I've just been sent the Bruce Lee at Golden Harvest box set, which is a mammoth set of all the films he made at the studio and multiple cuts of the films, like hours and hours and hours worth of special features. So it's going to take me a while to get through it. So I don't think it'll be up until probably late July. Oh yeah, I just posted a review of Magic Cop and Cross of Iron. And that's on Blueprintreview.co.uk. I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant. And you can find more information about that on my Howard Kasner screenplay consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and, and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. And I am an amateur photographer, 
and you can find those on Instagram. The previous episode was with producer, writer, and chairman of Here Media, Inc., Vinjarko, where we discussed two noirs with two of the best villains in movie history, Chinatown and The Third Man. The next episode will be with filmmaker David Owl, where we will talk two interpretations of the Prince Hal Falstaff section of Shakespeare's Henry IV, Parts 1 and 2, and these films are My Own Private Idaho and Chimes at Midnight. So once again, thank you, David, for being a guest on my show. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure.